0: My name is New, and this is Things I Don't Want. Age 16, a driving permit, the first step to freedom. Age 17, a state ID to watch 300 and super bad at the box office. Age 18. Birthday, midnight, the first lottery scratcher from 7-Eleven, a summer job, at In-N-Out burger, a cold stone creamery, a California driver's license with an embarrassing headshot, and a secondhand car to maintain that costs way more to maintain than to even buy, age 19. Pell Grants, Cal Grants, and Federal Grants on my financial aid award letter. The ability to accept the UC Region Scholarship for exceptional high school academics. A work study job at Moffitt or Dell, getting paid to arrange books. Age 20, a paid internship to research the next groundbreaking scientific discovery. Age 22, the Traveler Summer Research Fellowship at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York City. Age 23, the just consideration of my medical school application and federal Stafford loans to pay for medical school. Every year, a day without fear, a life without bars. Visibility, legality, status, papers, my own
1: nine-digit. Welcome to another episode of The Fog at Bay. I'm Ben Manske, and that was New Lativangskorn the first medical student at UCSF to publicly announce his status as a DACA recipient. DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, is a program that shields young undocumented immigrants from immediate deportation, giving them the right to work legally for two years. It doesn't, however, guarantee legal status nor other forms of government support, including things like financial aid for students. In today's episode, we hear from Nu and his close colleague, Ashwin Balakrishnan, as they discuss New's experience as an undocumented medical student within the Asian Pacific Islander or API community. Although this interview was recorded before President Trump's recent announcement to rescind DACA, New's story is now even more relevant and urgent. Here's Ashwin and Nu.
2: Hi, my name is Ashwin Valakrishnan. I'm a fourth year UCSF medical student. I started with Nu in um, 2014, and we came a little bit um, earlier uh, as part of the program for medical students geared towards serving under underserved communities and
0: in the urban context. Yeah, I'm, let me just jump in and introduce myself. My name is Nu Lativongskorn, and I'm also a fourth year medical student here at UCSF uh, along with Ashwin and I would say that um, many instances where uh, frustrations that would come up um, particularly about immigration as things were happening in the real world in the current political climate um, I would lean on him and and, so thank you and thank you for being here to chat about this. Yeah
2: it's kind of interesting to see these two sides of him uh, where he can be more casual with me and with our, our friends about some of the, the ways that, um, you know, his situation impacts him personally and impacts his family, and then the kind of the, the ways that he has to be more cautious and sometimes uh, and, and more strategic um, with how he presents himself in, uh, in the media, and because he's not just representing himself in those situations, it's also his community of undocumented students and undocumented people in the U.S. as a whole. I mean, having had the privilege of meeting your family and I've got. I've gotten to know some of them, and you talk about how they. You've brought them along in this work, or mm-hmm. ways that they've
0: surprised you. It would be criminal for me not to talk about my family, um, because actually, for me, my family and their struggles are very, very central to my motivation. So I moved here when I was nine years old, and a lot of it were were financial reasons, like my. Parents were kind of, there were these business owners and then Southeast Asia in the late 90s was a huge crash, like multi-national crash and everyone was sort of like struggling. And so, um, to find new opportunities, we moved and, um, they, you know, the, their lives were turned upside down and they were like these middle to upper class, totally different lifestyles. Like, I honestly grew up like being, I was spoiled as a kid because they themselves were, came from like, low-income communities when they were young and sort of built themselves up, so there's that, you know, yeah. when they were raising their kids, like, you can have whatever, like, yeah, um, and then suddenly they were, like, cleaning bathrooms and, like, working, like, six or seven days, and, but seeing their, their resilience through it, and this, is if we came here for me to do well in school, then that's what I will do, you know, and that's, I put all my efforts into, into that, um, along the way and um hope that like this American dream would be real and then, then I found out that it wasn't. <laughs> then I grew up. But it got me through to um to get to this point. At the beginning it, it connecting to my activism, um at first, I was kind of doing it you know on my own, and um they were kind of not proving of it and were scared of it um this is back in twenty twelve right when daCA came out actually and um my parents at that point they've kind of they've kn- they knew that I would be doing these stories but and they didn't necessarily prove every time I do one they're like again like we're you know why are you doing this and this and that, but they still let me do it anyways and when the story came out, I remember I was at this writing retreat. My dad called me on the phone, and he sounded really panicked um, because he he was like, "What? Like, why'd you do this? Like, you didn't tell us, or like?" Um, and I wasn't. I didn't even know that the story came out that day, so I didn't even know what was going on. So I was like, "Wait, well, what are you talking about?" And um, so basically, the story came out on like the front page. Um, his co-workers at the restaurant that he was working at kind of saw this, like asked, confronted him about it, like, wait, isn't this your son? Isn't this, um, wait, I thought you guys had green cards, you know? And, and I could sense the panic in his voice, you know? And, and then afterwards, the rest of that day, I remember I was very, I felt very guilty. I knew exactly what my dad was feeling. He came home at like 11 at night and and. I was like waiting and then I said, like, Hey, how's it going? And then he was like, Oh, I'm fine. And he was like, What do you mean? Like, how did it go with the story and the friend? And he was like, Oh, I just told them, like, we're undocumented and they were fine. And they're like, Oh, let's, let's like frame this newspaper article, you know? And I was, was like, Wait, what? <laughs> you know, it just went from like complete 180, you know, where. I guess he just said that he was just like open and vulnerable to his coworkers, and they understood. It's it's the the summary of it, you know. And I think that one of the instances that's shown me that a lot of the things that feed that generate like the fear and the anxiety are rational for immigrants. Yes, you can be detained and deported, and you know, but most a lot of other things are irrational because when people don't speak up they don't know exactly the instances and the laws of, of when that could happen and so then everything is scary you know and so i think it there's there's a value to speaking up because wherever there's silence you know there's often not there, there's no community
2: balance of your the rigors of the medical school curriculum with also your desire to be involved in this kind of work and uh, because it impacts you and your community?
0: Even in the past three years alone, there's been so much that's going on. Every year there's been like a big event where I've had to deal with it. So I remember in the first year of med school, I, I, I wanted to still stay involved um, in my work outside and helping other undocumented students. Um, I'm involved in the group called Pre-Health Dreamers, which is a non-profit program helping to support and document students to health careers. And so I wanted to still stay involved with that, and I did, and I was happy. But right now, I am, especially in third year, I've really tried to, to focus on on school and, and giving myself space to do that and being completely okay with that. And, and that's taken some time, but I think I've, I've reached it. Um, and then there are these... These these exceptions were after the election um, the new administration coming in that was one of those exceptions where um, I was like okay I can't I need to pause and let me go do a bit of work connect and or maybe do a few um, stories to try to um, go against whatever narrative was was in in the media mm-hmm. so there it's it's been back and forth the activism and medical school they've become much more related in third year in in the clinical year and I think that that's been beneficial whereas the first two years I distinctly remember sitting in class and honestly kind of feeling like oh my god like I'm sitting here studying all day where like just a year ago I was like doing things that I felt and knew that I was making impact every day and so a third year um, has been great for that seeing a lot of other underserved patients sometimes undocumented themselves um, I definitely got to learn some of those two things. do you, do you have? A, I
2: know that you have, you know, some patients during third year that stick out in your mind. Do you want to share a story about, you know, maybe about an undocumented patient that you, a journey that
0: resonated with you? Yeah. The one that's that that I'll share is um, doing my pediatrics rotation at um, SF General. I was on the inpatient service, but um, there was a patient that came in with pretty classic asthma exacerbation in urgent care, and I went into, and they they were going to need to be admitted, and um, so the residents sent me to urgent care to see them, and then um, when I started talking to them, they could only speak Spanish, so it was this kid who was there with his mom, and um, turns out they were undocumented, and when I found out through our conversation, I actually uh, shared that I was also undocumented. I remember the mom looked at me and I was like, "No, you're not," <laughs> um, and really like I was like, "Yes, I am," and that in itself was a, a positive moment to be able to have that interaction with somebody who was part of my community, somebody I mean, who's undocumented, you know. But but it didn't stop there. So then we admitted them, and you know we got him kind of on. Um, uh, the right treatment, and then throughout that night, actually, before I left, I was just talking to a more of his family members, and then um, siblings came in and all that, and the more I talked to all of them, the more I, I was connecting with, with all of them, too, and they were also, like, talking about going to college and also not sure about how to go about doing that and all of these things, and immediately, all of my other other aspects of, you know, the work I've done outside of med school, kind of came out. like, okay, let me talk to you about how do you know that you can go to college? Like, there are these resources, yeah. um, you know, and then I ended up, like, staying for, like, an hour or two just, like, talking about all these other things. That's a good example of how, you know, exa- exactly how me coming from this community, having these experiences can help add to my future work, like, as I am a doctor and working in public health, you know, and that... Maybe some would argue that that isn't the role of a medical student to be able to need to go into all the sort of social barriers and and tackling that. You know, I think oftentimes in the hospital, we've seen how it can easily be passed off to, oh, the social worker will come and talk to you about that, you know. But in some ways, I walked away feeling like, well, if that's, yes, that's the way the current system is and that's the way the current roles are defined, but maybe it can be different. I mean, that, I think that
2: story brings up a lot of uh, questions that Spanish-speaking patient sees you and doesn't think that you're undocumented, and I think that really speaks to the, uh, you know, the undocumented community is very diverse, right? Like, mm-hmm. coming from, mm-hmm. I mean, predominantly Latino, but, you know, it can be Asian, it can be African. and Can you speak to that diversity and how, what are some of the um, challenges of bringing together people that speak different languages that look very different from each other, but kind of brought together by the, being undocumented? Has it been interesting to see how
0: these different people have come together? Yeah. The, the beautiful thing is that um, no matter what, you know, what language they speak, what culture they come from, what race and ethnicity, eventually folks come out and they connect through the shared experience of being undocumented. You know, that is a very real and deep set of trauma, of, of challenges you know, that, that folks have faced that, I've seen time and time again people just like, Oh my god, you also understand, you know, like what it has meant to kind of be afraid of mm-hmm. the risks of deportation or to understand what it means to not be able to like you know, especially years before when people didn't have driver's licenses to kind of like not be able to drive and how to navigate that. Um, for the younger crowd to be called students without financial aid, without support. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- those kind of experiences do connect us really strongly. And it's usually a-, a source of, like, just strength for when, when we meet new people, when immediately people can feel connected. And-, and that is a beautiful thing.
2: Immigration is filled with sorrow. Families are split up and... People are you know deported and there's a lot of sorrow and you bring this like very positive story right and you, you come to medical school very resilient and um, but you do know people I know this that that uh, whose families are broken up and they don't know if they're going to see them again. How do you deal with that? two things when you're telling your story explaining to others? that, look, this is a diverse community, not just in terms mm-hmm. of race and language, but also in terms mm-hmm. of experience. You're their only window into undocumented issues. And Do you ever feel like you need to speak to this huge, mass of issues, you know? How do you deal with that psychologically and also mm-hmm. in terms of feeling um, as, a, like, loyal to the people and, and stories that you've
0: encountered along this way? Yeah, I actually really um, appreciate that question. It's, it's a tough one. Um, it's probably the the question that more recently and currently um, comes up um, quite often for me. And I think the, the short answer is that um, it is never easy. Uh, every time I speak about my own story um, and about immigration, I have to take those things into consideration. I have to. I think it's a responsibility that that comes with it, as far as I'm concerned, that, that, um, is, is just a part of it. It's either I share my story and I do it responsibly, really thinking about all these other factors, or maybe I shouldn't do it at all. Um, I, I, I've, I've seen people do one of two things. So, um, I have peers who sometimes they are very, very visible and speak on this and they say, as long as I just say, I don't represent all of the undocumented community. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just feel like, and, and they can just say what they want and be themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. For me, I think that's one part of it, but I don't think it stops there. Because like, I can I can say that as much as I want. Like, yeah, you know, it's a diverse community. It's a diverse community. There are also folks who um, whose families have been separated, who aren't in med school, and who have criminal records. But uh, they also matter, and they are also just people who deserve just access to all these basic things and deserve dignity, you know. And um, I can go on saying that, but then I share my the story of being this really, like, exceptional student and really good immigrant and all of that. And, and in a way, that is a disservice to, to the whole issue and the whole movement if I just do that. You know, because I do have to acknowledge the reality that I need to know what, what is the story that's being put out there. And there are times where... It's not useful to hear about the good immigrant, you know, because then, then it, it feeds into and that's the the media um, right. perpetuate the whole good versus bad immigrant. Yeah. You
2: know, as Asian Americans in, in this country, we kind of. Pitted against other uh, mm-hmm. uh, ethnic groups, you know, as being the good immigrants or the model minorities, it, uh, it kind of gets glossed over. And I'm wondering, um, in, the, in the immigration work that you've done, have you encountered that myth? And, and also, how do you connect to the, those other Asian communities, whether it's Thai folks or Chinese mm-hmm. folks, Indian folks, who are in those upper echelons of American society mm-hmm. and who could be powerful allies, right, and mm-hmm. who might have a soft spot for your story? How do you connect to that?
0: Yeah. So definitely 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 that is very real the modern minority myth still plays out even when we talk about immigration. Immigration is seen as a Latino issue because like API communities for example just are a little bit more silent about it, you know. And there's a lot more kind of just like internal like stigma um, and that we should be just a successful one and if we don't we aren't successful and we're like failing and so mm-hmm. therefore we shouldn't talk about it it's shameful and so that definitely is there and and the second part of your question is um, how do I kind of connect all the different folks on that spectrum and I think um, it's really with history and with like narratives mm-hmm. you know being um, just authentic and, and demystifying whatever it is that people think about immigration. In the years Uh, when I sort of organized and talked to older Chinese immigrants who immigrated, quote unquote, legally, Mm -hmm. and they were actually oftentimes the most, the hardest critics of saying, like, we came here legally, we waited five years, ten years, like, why can't you wait? Why shouldn't, why should we support you guys? And that's one of the key instances where, um, history is so important, where you bring it back to The root cause, open the dialogue up to think about why did you have to wait 10 years, you know, it's the same reason I became undocumented, it's because, you know, the system, the immigration system here in America is inefficient, and it's because the quotas of visas that, like, are set out by by the different country of origin you come from, you know, hasn't been changed or updated since, like, 1996, you know, like, that it's it's an arbitrary way of drawing borders and boundaries you know in in a world in a modern world where migration is natural and should be celebrated and accepted you know and you kind of draw these connections and think then people start to see you know that oh also for these chinese immigrants when they came back then you know and they were paper sons and paper daughters mm-hmm. It was another way of saying that they were undocumented, right? And they, that was the way that they, at that time, got through, got through the system. Making those connections, I've found, have been, have been really critical to, to opening up the conversation, you know? And yeah, and at the end of the day, it's just, again, narratives, and that always changes people's perspectives about Mm -hmm. things, because suddenly it's not the Mexican gang member in the news hopping, the border, and it's, you know, Korean
2: neighbor. I remember first year after you shared that uh, NPR piece online, we were going through the comments section. I think people were posting some harsh things, like, you know, go back to your country, or... uh, or go back to your country. They need you, or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's harsh. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> there's that. a bunch, bunch, of other ones too. Yeah, yeah, even way worse than that. But we'll right. get into that. <laughs> They're like Thailand doctors too. We should go back there. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I remember thinking of the time where you know there's all these people that don't know you who have opinions on you and your life and what you're choosing to do, and and I, I guess I have a lot of questions. Like one is. As we, this last election has shown us that we, as immigrants who grow up in metropolitan areas, might not be as exposed to um, that is kind of fearful of um, a changing America, and uh, that co- I was thinking of that that day when we were looking through those comment sections because it it was a way that we were exposed to that. We've spoken a lot about communicating with API groups and like other immigrant groups, and mm-hmm. like what about connecting to this larger audience, right? That um, people who are angry with Trump. About not being more uh, oppositional to DACA and mm-hmm. you know, getting rid of DACA. So, do you feel like it's your duty to, to speak directly to those people? Is that someone else's job? Are they even going to listen to you? Or you know? And how's that been for you?
0: Lots of emotions attached <laughs> to that question. Um, uh, when election night happened, and I was just like, just distraught. At just like, how could this be? Like how. In reaction to all these political changes happening that i it's very easy to find myself like angry and frustrated, and if you were to ask me in those moments like what I think about what should happen next, honestly, like I'm done with trying to get them to understand this, this and that about immigration and that like we're people too, and this and that, you know, because like I've done that now for like seven years and to some degree like there's a sense of like. It's just such a big issue. It's probably going to take hundreds and hundreds of years, unfortunately. And I and also other Indian documentary community has to also self-preserve and, and say, like, no, like, they, other folks who don't understand this can also make an effort to understand us, you know. It doesn't always have to, we don't always have to hold that responsibility of explaining ourselves, you know. Mm-hmm. We're also people, and we can, they also can reach out to us. So sometimes, I am mean, in that space, and then when I calm down a little bit more, I I remember and understand that oftentimes people don't realize mm-hmm. what their vote meant. People are not on the same page and don't operate with the same information on, on many issues, and particularly with immigration. So I oscillate. Uh,
2: Speaking now more about the... The activist community, right? And how to kind of advance this work. You've already talked a little bit about like balancing doing this work in the public sphere and then also in, in, in the community. Where do you feel like you're most effective? And how do you see your career in this work kind of pro- progressing?
0: It's also been in my mind a lot. This is actually one of the scarier moments when, as a med student, I have to accept this is that actually healthcare, even immigration, there are certain other issues. That actually a more downstream of a whole bunch of other factors. The way I see things right now, like culture, culture, culture is really the key, and I've only recently been more attuned to that way of framing things, like doing culture work. That really is what is upstream of all these issues in society that we um, are dealing with. You know, so the more you can change culture through different ways, through media, through education through, um, like, these conversations, through, really, that's why, like, a lot of change that happens, like, with the LGBT, just even from what we understand, you know, it's because slowly, even in mainstream media and TV shows, they start introducing LGBT characters and, like, really, like, getting into culture that way, and that's what changes people's minds and, and slowly, you know, gets them to understand, and then... When we talk about healthcare, the rules and policies, and immigration, you have to have to have to remember that these policies that we're dealing with, how are they made? Mm -hmm. They're made by people, right? They're made by people, 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 and they're made by people who are influenced by whatever other of their own opinions and whatever political, social context of that time. So basically, if you can change the culture, you eventually change the minds of people who are making these policies. Then you change. Things for the the long run, you know, and so that is how I've recently been thinking about what where I need to be going, you know, um, is how do I even get involved more so more upstream, get at changing culture and stuff that will event, eventually affect health. So that's why I'm doing I'm doing a master's in public health. I want to focus on policy. I really want to be um, in this next year at least um, kind of be really. Uh, vigilant about like what are some of those avenues Um, but at the same time I I still you know want to be a doctor still want to see patients even in this screwed up system and I still want to mentor students Um, you know I I don't just want to say like oh the system needs to change and then leave people hanging because that you know you also need to work with the system that's here in the meantime while you're changing it so having resources and direct services Always help because again, while you're waiting for the law to change, like people need services now, they need healthcare now, they need legal services now, you know. So it's important. Mm-hmm. Hopefully,
2: we can change the hearts and minds of the American electorate and, and things will move quicker. But in the meantime, what do we do in that space in between, yeah.
0: pre health dreamers and DACA? You know, what comes to mind are um, a lot of the things along my own journey. That, um, has allowed me to get to where I am and be who I am today. And so it's things like having a safe space to just talk about these issues, to be undocumented, to, um, talk about the good and the bad, the ugly, the fun. Um, it was those spaces were in, in during college when I was, um, really coming to terms with this, you know, being undocumented, um, that I was able to make those bonds and, um, while we're waiting to for change and all of that, you need to just be. You just need to you need to just be and find a way to not only survive but hopefully thrive and be happy and just celebrate the way things are now mm-hmm. too, to some degree. And, and and actually, that's that's how you build resilience. Yeah, I, you know. Um, I
2: like that. That's very beautiful. Yeah, like being being peaceful and, and happy in the, the world that's throwing all these challenges in itself is an act of resistance. Mm-hmm.
1: We want to thank Nu for sharing his story of vulnerability and hope during these times of political uncertainty. We also want to thank Ashwin for asking thought-provoking questions to foster this discussion. As we wait for Congress to finalize their decision on DACA, we at The Fog at Bay will continue to support undocumented students here at UCSF and all over the country. Please contact us by emailing us at thefogatbay at gmail.com or find us on Facebook to share your experience as a DACA recipient. This episode was written and produced by Lei Odama with editing help from Anna Lipkin. Dimitri Rumis, and me, Ben Manske. The Fog at Bay is supported and funded by the UCSF Vice Chancellor and Provost's Office. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more.